3: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ
4: Welcome
5: back to Upfront, I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. On the eve of transfer deadline day, Chelsea are making big moves. They've reportedly put in an offer for Katie McCabe. Could it really come off? We also discuss what deadline days really like as a player and this week marks the start of Football versus Homophobia's Month of Action. So today we're talking to the campaign's director Lou Inglefield about the challenges facing the women's game and two players from the UK's oldest out women's football club. Great. Right. It's been a big
3: week, a lot of cup things going on. Um, where did you find yourself? Well, I did Condi Cup quarterfinals Wednesday, Thursday, but that's old news now. Um, and of course, FA Cup at the weekend. We did two matches. We did West Brom versus Brighton and we did Aston Villa versus Fylde right afterwards. And I saw 18 goals in two matches. Not a lot then. No, pretty quiet. No? Pretty quiet weekend. Yeah.
5: Obviously, there's a lot of action, a lot of drama on the FA Cup days. There always is. But to be honest, there wasn't. That, it wasn't the juiciest of FA Cup weekends.
3: Uh, we didn't really see that many cup sets. We didn't. I think most teams we expected to win one, um, except maybe for Birmingham beating Everton. I think that was a bit mm-hmm. of a surprise. Everton have been on a pretty good run recently. They fielded a strong team. Birmingham have been a bit up and down, had lost to Sunderland the previous week, not had great consistency in the championship. And uh, Jade Panak stepped up and uh, got them the goal. So they beat Everton 1-0 and then, I think Cardiff beating Burnley 4-1 was a a bit of a surprise as well. So other than those two, I think there was some massive cup sets. I mean, Liverpool did well against Chelsea, ran them close, but Mm -hmm. ultimately Chelsea won that one as well. So no huge surprise.
5: No, I think the only surprise was probably my weekend. Yes, tell us, how did that go? Oh my God, I mean, another trip to Durham. Uh, It was amazing, as Durham always is. It's a very lovely city and that's all I have to say on it. No more. That's it. Do not want to um, talk about the result? No, <clears throat> well, moving swiftly on, I mean, I'd love to uh, stay in chat for that bit. But uh, I mean, there's been some big, big transfer news happening. Chelsea making a bloody big, <laughs> bloody bold move uh, in for Katie McCabe. Uh, the transfer window, of course, shuts tomorrow. Um, I mean, a substantial bid. We're not. No figures have been thrown around. I think it's around the 250k mark. That's what a couple of the papers
3: seem to be saying. But that's, um, that's bold from them. And I know Bold. You do, you know Bold very well. Um, This came out of the blue, pardon the pun. Um, Nice. I don't think any of us were necessarily expecting Chelsea to be looking for a fullback. I know people have spoken about the the likelihood of uh, Magda Eriksen and Pernilla Harder leaving in the summer. That's seemingly more possible now with this bid um, for Katie McCabe. And, And originally I kind of thought, where has this come from? But the more I think about it, actually... It kind of makes sense, you know, if, if Ericsson is leaving, who has primarily been playing left-back for Chelsea this season. You know, they need a good full-back mm-hmm. to come in and replace her. Katie McCabe hasn't really been Idaville's first choice. You know, Steph Catley is getting the nod there. McCabe's finding herself and, you know, left full-back at times, uh, right wing, left wing, and, and she probably wants a little bit more consistency. I can't see it happening in this window. I just think it's so last minute. Um, it seems like it's taken Arsenal by surprise. And even if it is a substantial bid, it doesn't give Arsenal any time to do anything with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe maybe they can throw more money at a signing that they're they're trying to get in last minute, but it just feels like it might be a tough one to turn around. They do need her in this in this uh, half of the season, um, and I think it'd, they'd be silly to let her go now. But definitely one to consider in the summer.
5: Well, I think she's just such a versatile player, and I think it would be madness for Idlewild to let someone like Katie McCabe know uh, to to let her go. Sorry, appreciating obviously that they've lost Mead and Meadham out for the rest of the season. I mean, to have another attacking threat also then go off to your direct rivals for this year just seems a bit crazy I mean she's got 18 months left in her contract I agree maybe some scope for it in summer I mean she's obviously said yeah open to it i said absolutely bloody no chance and Emma Hayes is we're not making any more transfers this uh, this window so there's a, a few mixed messages there. I can
3: get a player being interested can't you like if a club like Chelsea who are serial winners in the in the English League particularly you want to hear what they have to say I don't think it's it shouldn't be a huge surprise if a player, and there's big figures being thrown around, wants to say, I mean, I'll hear you out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the loyalty
5: that McCabe has had, I mean, she's been with the club now for almost seven years and she's a fan favourite. She's a cheeky Irish chappy. I mean, she's, I don't know, it'd just be such a, it'd be a loss of a
3: personality. Would she have the same personality at Chelsea? I don't, I don't know. How many trophies have they won though in that time? You know, you want to win. She's top class. You know, it, it could be different. Arsenal could go and win something this season. It might change your mind. Um, But yeah, an interesting one that definitely surprised me. I'd love to know how the players feel about it. Like, from your perspective, how disruptive can that be when those kind of rumours start flying?
5: Oh, I mean, and it's it, not even
3: a rumour, is it? <laughs> no, I mean,
5: it's obviously a, an actual thing that's happened. But I think... um. It's hard. I think when it gets to, you know, December, you've already played half of the season, depending on how your season's gone, you've obviously want a break, spending time with friends and family, and in the back of your mind, you are constantly thinking, Who's coming in? Am I safe? It's that kind of Christmas anxiety, the December, January anxiety, because no one's saying like your coaches aren't saying, your managers aren't saying, your GM's not saying. It's all very shrouded. It's all very, oh, hush, hush. Um, So, yeah, and I think you never really feel like you're safe in that in that moment. And I think that's a good thing because it does keep you on your toes, but it does also fill you with a lot of dread. Um, So, yeah, once you've got to the back end of January, and you can get into February and you're like, oh, God, I'm actually safe. All right, I'm safe here for another year. It does. Uh, make a big difference but I think um, you know especially for the the youngsters who are in the squads now I think constantly keeping them on their toes it, it keeps things competitive and I think now the transfer windows are something that's getting a lot more attention oh my god yeah it's um, it's heightens the drama so I think it's sort of a fan experience the transfer windows and how much are these players going to go for it's um, it's exciting
3: I think there's more to come and I think this has been one of the most exciting transfer windows mm. um, Emma Sanders from BBC is great at keeping on top of this stuff Um Apparently, Liverpool want a forward. Reading want a striker and a defender. West Ham are looking for a forward. Arsenal, of course, looking for a striker. Brighton's still looking too. Apparently, United, Tottenham and Leicester are happy with their business at the moment. We also thought Chelsea were happy with their business, but apparently not. <laughs> so, you know, we could see some big announcements tomorrow um, and it could go right down to the wire, which... I'm not sure we've necessarily seen before. No, well, I also heard off the grapevine that Arsenal are trying to obtain
5: Nikki Everard. Um, who, I thought that was Chelsea. No, I heard it was Arsenal. Oh my God, this oh my is God, God, the drama! Starts. Um But yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, she's one to watch. I mean, she picked up so much attention and rightly so from the Euros, putting in some stellar performances with, with Belgium. So um, yeah, it's not surprising really that the WSL are looking at her as, um, you know, the next Biggest thing in
3: there to compete, maybe with, with Mary Erpson. Yeah, that. interesting. I mean, Arsenal did just sign Sabrina D'Angelo, who mm-hmm. um, made her debut in the Conti Cup. And uh, I'd be surprised if they went looking for another goalkeeper now. Um, I think they've got bigger shoes to fill. So I've heard the rumour of Alessia Russo. You never know. You could see... Stop talking about the McCabe Alessi Russo. The McCabe deal could go through last minute and that could be the thing that pulls in Russo. You never know. It could all be drama tomorrow.
5: Look, you're talking nonsense. Russo's not going anywhere. She's best mates with Toon and that's enough. All right? They're going to get the Champions League spot if not the WSL title. So, true, um, true.
3: <laughs> that's what I mean. You know, players could be have one eye on transfers but one eye on things could still happen at the club I love. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it goes, you know. So, it's almost like hedging your bets, isn't
5: it? How's the team gonna do? Uh, I know that I've got options now. Let's wait out to the end of the season and see who
3: comes sniffing. And then, from a club's perspective, you're thinking the longer they wait, the less the, their value goes down as their contract mm-hmm. runs out. So, do Arsenal go and and sell someone now, who might will get more? Do they wait six months where they won't get as much? You know, you've got clubs hedging their bets on. We know that this is a really valuable player. Leslie Russo is still waiting to sign a contract. Mm-hmm. Do you sell her now for big money, or do you wait when her contract runs out and there's no fee potentially? Like it's it's a, it's a gamble.
5: Well, I think the clubs also have that in their armour, don't they? Once they get to the end of the season, they can say, "Look, I mean, we've just won the WSL title. We've just received. We've just got our uh, Champions League sort. You want to come over to us? Like, look at us. Like we're, we're doing bloody incredible. So maybe it's uh, yeah one to watch for for summer. Um, talking about another big. Well, not even it's not a transfer, is it? I tried to segue that in, but it's not a transfer at all. It's a it's a transfer out of international duty.
3: Is it? Is yeah. that what you want to call it? Is that
5: is okay. that right? She's yeah. transferred
3: to solely domestic duty.
5: Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. We segued that in really lovely. Uh Jen Beattie, uh, Scottish defender, 31 years old. I always thought she was a little bit younger, but she's got such a mature Easy. head on her. Um, she made her international debut at 17 in the under 19s uh, European Championship. I mean, 143 caps for her country. Part of the securing qualifications for the 2014 Euros and the 2019 World Cup. I mean, not only just on the pitch and everything she's achieved, but also off the pitch. She's been through her own personal battles. Um, She was diagnosed with breast cancer in October 2020, uh, recovered from that uh, and then received a bloody MBE.
3: Not a bad bad career, is it? Not a bad shift. Yeah. I mean, you spoke to Jen recently. What were her sort of thoughts and vibes? I did. And I felt a little bad because she'd said had... Scotland qualified for the World Cup. That was heartbreaking. We wouldn't be having this conversation. She would still be playing. Really? She just, yeah, she just feels like the Euros is just a step too far and and she thinks now is the right time to bow out as the team is kind of reshaping and re-gearing up for a new campaign. And I felt bad because obviously it was Ireland that, you know, did that to Scotland. And Shame as, on you. As much as I want to feel bad for Jen <laughs> about that, I can't, I, it's very hard to because it meant Ireland went through and I, I did kind of say to her, look, you qualified for Euros. I know she was injured for that. But you also got to a World Cup. You got to 2019 World Cup. You scored a goal. Small achievements, Do you know really, what I mean? in the You've scheme ha- of things. And she was like, OK, you can have your turn. So, um, no, fantastic career. Really great person. Um, has achieved a lot with, with Scotland. Has spoken about some of the, the great players she's played with. Julie Fleeting, Kim Little. Mm. Um, and recognised as well the talent within that squad. And she really does believe that that squad can achieve something. Um, and she's right; they're unbelievable. The names in that in that squad: Caroline Weir, Aaron <coughs> Cuthbert. You know, so many great, great players. So you know, and yes, very, very sad that um, she's leaving. But I, I can understand where she's coming from now; it kind of makes sense. And uh, she's fully focused on Arsenal.
5: Mm. Well, I think it, I mean it sounds like it felt like the right time for her. And I think you know when you know. Uh, I mean, I'm not in any way comparing myself to Jen Beattie, and obviously, I retired last year from non-international duty at Championship level um but it does i think you you just know and i think it is that thing where you've got the younger generation of players coming through you can appreciate the talent the elite pathways that are now there and actually sometimes you just got to make space for young those
3: young whippersnappers um she said the team was like a second family which was lovely she spoke about the fact that she'd left scotland at a fairly young age you know to go off and play football mm-hmm. and every 6 to 8 weeks you're meeting up with your your national team in those international windows and you know she said it was, I can kind of understand this, not that I ever have international windows but that getting back surrounded by Scots and, and that kind of vibe where you're back home again, may, maybe not physically but with your team and she said it became like a second family because it gave her that, that mm-hmm. Scottishness every six to eight weeks and like <laughs> I get that like you go home and you fill up on Irishness like it's, <laughs> I totally get that so she spoke really really highly of her squad and what they meant to her and I think she is a similar vibe at Arsenal as well. There's a real Mm -hmm. family vibe and and they were obviously incredibly supportive during her cancer battle. So, yeah, an absolute legend of the game, but at least we've still got her playing domestically.
5: Massively. And I think obviously it's quite nice now that she can just turn her whole whole focus on to to, to Arsenal. We saw
3: what it did for Kim Little. Yeah, true. My God. Yeah. You know, obviously she retired from Scotland relatively early and... She's still playing now and, and she's still, like, I found myself on Thursday at times just being like, oh my, how are you doing that? Like, mm-hmm. and she's still doing that. So... You know, it could be a good thing for Jen. It just gives her a bit more rest and recovery time.
5: Well, I think it's that. It's uh, international duty, I think you forget sometimes how demanding and how intense international duty is. Um, you know, you're away for long periods of time, you the camps that you go to, the constantly fighting for your position on international and club level, it's um it's a lot. Uh, and especially when you've been through your own sort of, you know, really significant personal battles. Um
3: but yeah. one I thing mean... she did say, which was lovely, is that when she played in France and she scored that goal against Argentina, I thought this is a lovely anecdote. Um, is that she managed to score on the same pitch that her dad who played rugby for Scotland had scored a try for Scotland on never how special must that have been that's beautiful isn't it
5: This Wednesday is an important date for two reasons. It's the start of LGBTQ history month and it's also the start of football versus homophobia's month of action, which takes place every year in February. It's an international campaign to tackle homophobia and prejudice against lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people in football, all with the aim of making football safe and welcoming for everyone. Today, we're going to speak with two players from the UK's oldest out team, Hackney Women's FC. And we want to hear from them about the importance of those safe spaces. But first, let's hear from Lou Englefield, Director of Football Versus Homophobia, about some of the challenges unique to women's football and some of the LGBTQ plus icons that have led the conversation in the
3: women's game from years gone by. How does your work kind of apply to the women's game?
4: Well, I think that's a really interesting question because obviously a lot of our focus has been on the men's game. Um, You know, there are really kind of obvious issues around the men's game. If you look, for example, since we've um, come back, um, you know, uh, kind of after Christmas, we've seen a whole load of kind of homophobic chanting, homophobic incidents from you know, like from the Premier League right down to non-league and in fact grassroots um, as well. I think Stonewall FC had to have a, a kind of game postponed because of of homophobic abuse. So there are really obvious issues in the men's game. And that means that I think people tend to overlook what we do in the women's game. So... Um, so I think one of the things to say is that we do um we have a grassroots campaign as part of our month of action in February. And we always have lots of girls and women's um teams sign up to that and um and we try and make the information that we share with those teams relevant to the women to the girls and women's game. So for example, you know, um um lesbians are um, or lgbt women actually um are less active than women as a population as a whole um so there's issues there around participation in sport and physical activity and um when we just did a study a few years ago into um the experience of um um lgbt plus q plus um Uh, women and men um, in sport and physical activity, what we found was actually um, only like 39% of physically active lesbians, 26% of active bisexual women and 31% of active trans women were taking part in actual organised sport. And the, the kind of activity that they generally were involved in were things like running, cycling, walking, the kind of activity where you are invisible, where you're not accountable to anyone, where you don't have to come out. Um, and so we think that there are still issues in women's sport in general and therefore in women's football around LGBTQ plus women kind of getting involved, feeling supported and feeling totally comfortable. That is so interesting.
5: Yeah, it is. I think because obviously we, we work in women's football so and we see a lot of the LGBTQ plus community in the game so i think you get sort of blindsided thinking that loads of lgbtq plus men and women get involved in sport because we're constantly around it. i mean me and rachel from the lgbtq plus community ourselves so in terms of you know the the barriers and challenges or the um you know reluctance to engage with sport where where are those sort of challenges mainly coming from when you're speaking to these people at grassroots clubs are they sort of saying well i've had this experience or i've been negatively affected in this way what's what's the kind of general general consensus on that
4: I think there's I think there's a load of different reasons so there was some research done I mean quite a while ago now because there's not a huge amount of research done um in these areas there's a lot of research done around homophobia in men's sport but there's much less done around around kind of women's sport and so what you find is um that the from the bits that kind of people glean it's about those things about You know if you join a club um feeling like you've got to come out to people you know if it's not something that you've done all your life and you know been on a pathway um from your childhood then you you know you have to come out to people there's also quite a lot of gender scrutiny in sport because sport is so binary um you know there are particular ways in which it seemed to be acceptable to be a woman and ways in which it's acceptable to be a man and so and some of that kind of like unconscious policing happens in the women's game you know you've got to look or be a certain way you know to to engage in in sport and physical activity so i think that can be really off-putting um for some women i know that widely in the lgbtq plus demographic there's um an alienation from uh, competition Lots of that comes from young experiences, so school experiences. I was just going to ask, you touched on, you know, a stat that
3: surprised me is that the LGBTQ plus community is, is less likely to be active and that those who are, are often in individual sports. And we often look at the women's game as a place where people are quite open and, and willing to speak up and speak out. Do you think that's to do with the fact that a lot of those people then have already crossed that path? barrier of coming out and are are happy to be and comfortable to be themselves so that's why they're more open as opposed to say that percentage you're saying are more likely to do individual sports they've not really they don't want they haven't you know crossed that barrier of, of coming out
4: yeah i think that's a kind of really i think that's a really interesting one I, I suspect that the reason that um that uh players in the women's game might be more vocal is because uh you know one crossing that barrier and coming out to the re- the support they've received when they do come out um so you know there's less potentially less toxicity i think around sexual orientation in the women's game um you know i mean that's my speculation so i i i'd I think it's probably um a, probably a combination of those things but also let's let's not also f- just take the women's game as it is now because it's also taken for a whole load of women to come out to be in the place we are now i mean when i started working in this in this space like in you know 2006 or whatever You know, I'd walk into a room and I'd go, oh, hi, I'm Lou Englefield and I'm from, you know, Pride Sports and we're an LGBTIQ plus sports development organisation. And people's eyes would hit the floor and women's eyes would hit the floor because they used to be, and certainly in my experience, a real kind of culture of don't ask, don't tell in uh, women's sport and in women's football, particularly. I just
5: find that it's such a, a stark contrast, I think. So obviously I've grown up in a different era, sort of the, yeah. and, uh, you know, when I've you know been playing for Spurs, been playing for Palace, you know, I've been amongst teammates and the majority of the team have been from the LGBTQ plus community. And I think it's such a unique atmosphere to have a space in which, you know, the majority of the colleagues that you work with and see on a daily basis are talking openly about their partners or women that they're dating or non-binary people that they're dating. And I think that for me has always felt like a very safe space. And I think even going back, you know, I'm showing sure my age now sort of like 10, 11, 12 years ago when I was at university and, you know, I was just about coming out. I was about 18, 19 years old. And, you know, one of the safest spaces that I ever had was Leeds University football um, club. We used to go out to the gay bars and that was my first experience of, you know, going and seeing what gay people do on a Friday and Saturday night because I just, I had no real idea. I mean, I had assumed, but, uh, but there I was sort of in there in Leeds gay bars. And I think, You know, have have you seen sort of, you know, because I've seen it going from maybe grassroots to national championship to WSL and and everywhere has seemed quite inclusive. But do you think there's a difference or there's becoming a difference between the inclusivity and acceptance that you see at grassroots level to how it it is at elite level at all? Is there any gap there?
4: What I think um, uh, is that is what you've what you've totally described there is a kind of generational shift. So I think that, um, you know, around the time you're talking there about um, playing at Leeds, um, you know, some research came out around the experience of lesbian coaches. And the research found that anecdotally, lesbian coaches had been seen, the respondents to the study had been seen as problematic, as unsuitable leaders. Loads of lesbian coaches weren't out around children because... They felt that they would be judged for that, so I think we've seen like a really, a really kind of like big change over really quite a small period of time, and I think that um, I think you know it it it's an inter- it it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it was only around the kind of women's Euros that there was like an article in the press, and one of the questions that it kind of reiterated was, you know. Um, does celebrating inclusivity in women's football put straight women off playing football? And, you know, I can't believe that that is a question that's still being asked. You know, I I um, coached uh, grassroots football um, with um, girls teams. I've got two daughters who are now grown-ups, but I coached their teams, and uh, they were just little grassroots teams, and hardly any of those girls have carried on playing the game. You know, I can think of maybe two or three of them. You know, one one's playing, you know, one is now playing, you know, at a decent level. But, you know, the rest of them, th- there was just a huge dropout when they were kind of 14 or 15. And the reason, in my experience, why those girls were dropping out was because they became teenagers. You know, it wasn't, all of a sudden, it wasn't very sexy to be a footballer. You know, it really concerns me that these stereotypes persist around the game when actually there's loads of other reasons that girls drop out of football that are nothing to do with, um, you know, nothing to do with whether there's, uh, you know, large numbers of LGBTQ plus people in the game.
5: I think it is a really, I think it's something that definitely comes to the forefront, I think, in, in February. I mean, obviously being with clubs, you know, even with Crystal Palace, every time it sort of comes to sort of uh, the start of the year, you normally get this... Um, you know, uh, plans, marketing plans around, you know, what are we going to do to activate, you know, Pride Month? What are we going to do to show, um, you know, support for the LGBTQ plus community? And what we're starting to see now amongst the WSL and championship clubs especially is that, you know, the men's and the women's teams are coming together to kind of have these conversations. So it's normally, a you know, a player from the, the women's team, a player for the men's team, uh, team, and they're sitting down having discussions about, you know, the women's team's experiences and the men's team's experiences and, you know, family members who might be in the LGBTQ plus community and what more we can be doing and what challenges we're facing and, you know, what more the clubs and the FA can be doing, which, which seems to be great. Um, but I think that's sort of what's happening now, but I think it'd be really useful to kind of hear from from you um, if you could tell sort of some of our listeners about you know some of the iconic individuals uh, in, in the game uh, that, that I think listeners should should perhaps know a little bit more about. I mean, I don't want to say Lily Parr as a starting point, but if you wanted to start there, you, you absolutely could.
4: <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Lily Parr was yeah uh, um, was an extraordinary footballer, and she was a footballer who defied gender stereotypes defla- defied class stereotypes she was um an extraordinary player played for dick kerr's ladies um you know in the kind of 19 the, basically when women's football was um hugely popular during the first world war uh because um uh, you know men were out uh, were, were fighting the war Women were working in factories, and basically, factory teams set it, set up, and so these these teams of women played football again for their factory against other factories, and it became enormously, enormously popular. And Lily Parr was um, was um, one of the most famous players uh, playing at that time, and you know she was really tall and very athletic. You know, she reputedly had a kick that was as strong as a man's. She once sent a male goalkeeper off the pitch on a stretcher and he was <laughs> claiming that she'd broken his arm. Um, <laughs> and um, and then basically, of course, then what happened was women's football was banned, as we know. Um, and, um, you know, at a time when the England, the representative England women's football team was like travelling to the US to play football, was traveling, you know, to France to play football. So it was a really, really exciting time. And then fo- women's football got banned and and basically, you know, Lily um, lived with a partner. Um, she carried on playing football, but not the level that she'd been able to play football, but she openly lived with another woman at a time when it was really, really unacceptable to do so. so. For me, Lily Carl's absolutely iconic, you know, and, and needs to well, you know, I took I, I took my photo with her statue at the National Football Museum last week because she she's such an icon for me. But, you know, even in the time that, that I've been working in this space, you know, we have to say thanks to people like Casey Stoney, for example, who came out in 2014. And, you know, in, in certainly in England was like one of the first female footballers at that at uh, that the absolute highest level to do so. can't remember whether she was England women's captain at the time, but probably. and um, you know, well when she came out, you know we we talk a lot about, oh, you know, it's not so difficult to come out in the women's game, but Casey said she'd been struggling with it for years, you know. And she was worried about stereotypes, you know, people like Megan Rubino. Before Megan Rubino was like a global phenomenon, you know, when she was a younger player, she was still talking about things like gender expression in the game and how women who don't necessarily present in a certain way are welcomed um, into the game and supported. Anita Asante, one of my absolute faves, you know, these women were absolute pioneers of the game and as i said the fact that i'm talking about 2014 2015 to the situation that we're in now shows how massively um the women's game has changed in the last 10 years it's incredible i think yeah. it's um it's almost unusual because i suppose you know playing the game
5: and being a part of the women's football community you kind of know of players who are in the lgbtq plus community who maybe weren't mainstream out there and yeah. i think it was only really when you start to look at um it was Magda and Panilla, wasn't it, in uh, the as the World, was world 2019 Cup twenty nineteen world, yeah. world Cup. And I feel like that's when the mainstream football community and the just the, the world as a whole appreciated that there were lesbians in the game. But I think, you know, what you were talking about there, the kind of backlash, the sexualization of uh, their relationship was also very eye-opening because it wasn't something that I think we'd been really exposed to before. Um, you know, you see the papers sort of talking about you know, their relationship and what it must mean. And obviously they're, they're you know, good looking people. Um, and I think it sort of attracted the wrong, the wrong kind of attention. Um, yeah, I don't know whether
3: you kind of felt that way. Um,
5: not really.
3: Like, I mean, of course there was some of that. There will always be some of that. But what I've found is that it was kind of the, maybe not the first time because players have been using their platform, but it was it was almost opened the eyes of other players to the platforms that they had. Because what I often found in women's football is people don't always feel the need now to come out. Mm -hmm. They're just who they are on their social media platforms and you know who their partners are because you follow them on social media. And there's, I'd say a lot of what the work that's been done by some of these pioneers you spoke about has taken that weight off. Um, And I guess with the interest growing in the women's game, that moment, that famous Paris Kiss moment um, also showed players that they had a platform and that Mm -hmm. they had this powerful voice that they could use. And... I'd say, yeah, that Prunella and Magda now obviously use their platforms, but I think they've probably inspired an awful lot of others, younger players, to realise that they too can have that influence.
1: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
2: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ
5: But I think it'd also be interesting to obviously touch on uh, a little bit more about, um, you know, the tolerance of, of trans football players as well uh, in the in the women's football uh, community right now. Because I think that's obviously a kind of a bit of a hot topic in a way. Um, I mean, yeah, what, what, what's your experience been of uh, the sort of trans inclusion and where and where it's where it was to where it is is now?
4: Well, I think um, one of the things is that. Um, you know the fa developed their trans policy um their kind of um their playing policy which is really uh their kind of playing regulations to be honest um in i don't know 2013 2014 and their um policy um allows trans people to play in the game under certain conditions so it's a very medicalized model um but uh, it is allowing trans people to currently play affiliated football. And when we are seeing, um, you know, i to say the fall of, of governing bodies to anti-trans messaging and the number of international federations that have started imposing effective trans bands um, in their sports, you know, I'm you know i think that we've got to be grateful to the fa for um for having a policy um that is kind of like inclusive and one of the things that i think is really problematic at the moment is there's so much anti trans stuff um you know, rhetoric in the media and it's it's absolutely unbelievable in the media now in politics as well. And I think it's very difficult to get away from that. And so I think that women's football, for example, but was always kind of like really, uh, really a uh, really inclusive game. I think now people have been exposed since about, you know, 2016, 2017, to this horrible, horrible anti-trans rhetoric. And so I think there are people who are asking questions
5: I think just on that, Lou, would you sort of mind opening up a little bit about your experiences of what those sort of rhetorics or those harmful rhetorics and, and sort of narratives are that are coming out from, from the media? And
4: um, So um, so what we're seeing is we're seeing anti-trans activists weaponise sport. So because of our assumptions, basically our assumptions that, you know, men are bigger and stronger than women and therefore will be better at all sport, which is a myth um but basically what's happened is that anti-trans activists have used that very basic lack of sports science to argue that therefore trans women will be stronger and faster than cisgender women and therefore it's unfair for them to um for uh, unfair for them to take part um put in competitive sport and actually the science to support that isn't there um and um you know um at all there's been very very little research done on um transgender athletes themselves and um, I know there's some research happening down at the University of Brighton at the moment, so we'll be really looking forward to um uh to that coming out but for example, the Canadian Center for Ethics in sport recently commissioned a review of the literature so the CCES is basically like UK Anti-Doping. You know, it's the the organisation that that's that's concerned with things like doping and fairness and regulation, all of those kinds of elements of sport. And they brought out a review of the literature, and the review of the literature said that at p- a performance level, the research shows that after a year of taking hormone therapy, trans women are a no more advantage um in performance sport to uh, to cisgender women and um and yet you know you wouldn't believe that if you um saw the regular kind of narrative in the uk press and um you know it's it's a tough time to be doing my job at the moment
3: there's a lack of scientific information coming out so there's this void that's being filled with anti trans hatred and and it, it's, you know, we also shouldn't have to keep kind of proving ourselves, but there is evidence out there, mm. as you say. Um, but there's some good good things that have happened, you know, on, on Transgender uh, Day of Visibility last year, friend of the show, Ceylon Andy Hickman's Dulwich Hamlet FC, um, played a game against a team made up entirely of transgender women representing TRUK United FC. So that was very cool. And, um, th- you know, I've read Samantha Walker's story. Um, she was in Watford's Academy until she was 17 and then left you know struggling with her identity and and she now plays in the women's national league um and of course she struggled with abuse um but her her story is very inspiring as well yeah i think it's um you're almost kind of waiting. I think obviously with Sam
5: Walker playing for the National League, uh, you know, you, I think at some point in the future, we're going to see a, a trans player playing in the WSL or championship. And then I think the the conversation, the debate moves forward. And I suppose the FA are going to have to sort of develop practices, uh, you know, sort of quash some of the narratives that you're talking about. There's, there's obviously research, incredible research that's coming out very shortly. Um Yeah. Do you think there could be any sort of potential barriers or you know i'd be thinking maybe in terms of you know the media backlash about a trans player at sort of the the elite level because we're kind of yet to see it there
4: yeah definitely i mean if you look at um for example the last olympics and the amount of um media focus on laurel hubbard um at that um you you know at that level i think you know, the likelihood, uh, the likelihood of us seeing a trans player in the near future at the highest levels of the game are still fairly remote, to be honest. I mean, it will happen. But, but you know, from the stats that I mentioned earlier on, you know, trans people, and, and those stats were from about five years ago, before we saw this incredible narrative um, start in the UK. And, in my experience of speaking to um to you know trans people um involved in sport and physical activity they're no longer feeling safe so and you need to have followed a pathway and the chances are that you've come through an academy now and you know all of these things need to stack up and the chances that you know that somebody who is trans who has come along that pathway had to take a year out to make sure that their their um, you know testosterone levels meet the FA's requirements, then come back into the game, have the support of all their players, and then kind of like come in, you know, reach that kind of higher level. It, it It's a challenge. It's a challenge for anybody, but for trans people, trans women in particular, I think it, it's a massive challenge. You know, I've seen... I think last season, you know, some anti trans activists turn up at the match of a, um um of a player to protest. I mean, it's just you know, it it's horrible. It it's a really difficult situation. So and and yeah, you know, we need um we do need the FA to be showing leadership. I mean, interestingly, um, FIFA are in the process of reviewing their policy at the moment. Um, and um you know we're hoping that's going to come out in the next don't know, ne- you know th- this year and so and hopefully that will will show some leadership in this space based on a consideration of the of the research that's available it also requires
3: an awful lot of bravery from the people it's yeah. much like the conversation we have about gay male football players at the end of the day it's it's going to be on a person to have to deal with that and it's just another example of how much more is needed Mm. for football to be made a really proper inclusive place
5: For a grassroots perspective two players from Hackney Women's FC joined us in the studio We've got Megan and Logan telling us about what it means for them to be able to play for a queer women's football team and they told us a little bit about the history of the UK's oldest out women's football club all right. Welcome, Logan. Welcome, Megan. We've got you both down from Hackney Women's FC. Um, I mean, thanks for joining us in the pod. Thank you so much. Thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah. I mean, guys, if you just want to do a little bit of an intro about yourselves, if you could tell us your position uh, and also how this weekend went.
6: Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Um, I'm Megan. Uh, I'm a player and I'm on the committee for Hackney. I, Well, I do social media, but it's a lot more to that than, than just social media. Preach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love
5: it when you have one job in women's football and it just
7: expands into Yeah, Yeah, literally. Yep, yep. I feel that, yeah. <laughs> um, or do you want to do your position as well? Or? Oh,
6: on the pitch, I play right wing but i'm transitioning into centre mid. oh nice okay look forward to following yeah. that journey yeah. all right <laughs> i love it i actually love it How <laughs> um, about you Logan?
7: i'm logan i play at hackney women's um i currently am playing right back i used to be a goalie but i broke a finger and now i'm trying to get used to being on the pitch again so oh wow nice.
5: yeah i mean it happens i've got you been there I mean, my fingers are gnarled. They're, so gnarled. they're like uh, twiglets or... Yeah, horrible. Um, I mean, how important is it for you uh, guys to have an open, safe space uh, like Hackney Women's FC where you can sort of play football, be yourselves? Like,
6: It's it's nothing like I've ever experienced before in terms of the dynamic in a football team. Like, quite often it's very cliquey in, in women's football teams, mm-hmm. but here we really... We don't have a lot of that. Um, it has its, like, ups and downs, but like there's not really everybody's there for each other pretty much and for the good of the club which is cool
4: love that
7: yeah i think particularly as like queer i'm queer and Mm non-binary and so like finding a space that's good to play football in has been more difficult because growing up being raised as a girl or woman um i like immediately knew what teams i was going to be part of but now it takes a bit more time to find a space where you want to be um and people that you want to be around and i think that's a huge reason why i like hackney women's is there are so many queer people and everyone who isn't queer is very welcoming Mm -hmm. um but also as an expat like moving here from the states getting used to living in london having a nice football team that does meet up so often socially is super important i think helps the transition a lot yeah
6: yeah we try and do like socials every month as well so like for the whole club
7: well, me and Rachel would love to come down. Yeah, yeah thank of course. you. Definitely. Um, I'm joining yeah. now. Yeah.
6: <laughs> I mean, you have to
5: come. Our karaoke is quite <gasps> iconic. <so>. 100%. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Michael Buble is coming on. God, I love this again. Yeah, 100%. So, like, yeah. You guys are talking about how important it is to kind of have this like quite inclusive, friendly atmosphere at Hackney. I mean, what makes that so different and so special to you you guys is that really important to you to kind of have you know not only teammates but people who are friends who support you and um you know that you love I suppose in a way yeah
6: yeah like we're we're literally like one big family like it's really cool like I said like I've never really been in a team with with a dynamic like this Mm -hmm. and it's like everybody does look out for each other like there's like the, the ins and outs and like you know first team is there's like eight couples in the first team oh wow yeah okay there's a lot of love yeah <laughs> a lot of love in that team. and then we've got like not only that we've got the whole um hackney legends um who are all the founders and the ex-players because we've been we was founded in 1986 oh wow okay so we still have a lot of those people connected to the club today and they'll come to socials and like we'll have lots of different events like often people when people get married it's just hackney
5: there um so like the hackney alumni yeah okay. they, they have
6: their their facebook page is called the hackney alumni yeah. do you have like
3: rings and stuff <laughs>
6: we should that would be sure so cool <laughs> um but yeah like the the longevity of it is incredible um and the way that the relationships work is really cool as well yeah
3: well i mean expand on that a little bit more about the history you know reads on your on your twitter page you were the first totally run by women's team, right?
6: We're the first openly gay yeah. women's football club. Um, so, yeah, we were founded in 1986. So, like, during really, like, that trite homophobic times, um, all the AIDS stuff. And so there was a lot of barriers that they had to push through mm-hmm. to to be who they are um, and have the club where it is today. We're not associated with any men's clubs either. We're just, like, standalone. Um, there's some incredible stories from the founders and, and the older players who who yeah like I said like being told that they're they're too gay and they're influencing young women and that quite ironically they were once told that they were um sending football women's football back 50 years Oh, which right, I thought was really interesting. What, like before
3: the banner, <laughs> I, I think
6: so. Yeah, I don't really know what was how, how you great. Can,
5: that was you, when like we had thousands of exactly, fans, yeah. <laughs> um, also so, being too gay, like yeah. you toned down your gayness a yeah. little bit, okay. All right, so it was like kind of
6: It's interesting. They'd say like people would come up to them, um, wherever tournaments and stuff, and be like, Oh, are you are you the hackney woman? and that was kind of code for like. You, you, the gay team, like <laughs> out of all the teams here, because they'd want to people would want to know and come and join and talk to them and stuff. So, yeah. yeah, I think it was really cool. They had quite a presence in that day.
5: But I think, obviously, on, on a grassroots level, it seems to be sort of expanding. Is that right? Do you feel like there's more and more clubs who are sort of, you know, being openly out and proud or inclusive as, as such? Like when you play other teams, is it sort of like a it, do you sense that in a way?
7: Generally, the vibes are fairly queer <laughs> um, when we go to games. Like I don't know, you can just kind of be there and be like, yeah, there's quite a few gay people, involved in this. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is really nice. But it also makes it it's hard because there's so many teams. I feel like to pick from and like figure out. It's and you, I don't know. I know when I was trying to find a team, just like how do you decide like where to go and um, things of that sort. So I feel like it makes it difficult, but mm-hmm. in a good way. Yeah, to, like to have so many options
3: and in terms of like seeing out elite women's players being open and speaking about how important is is that
6: i think it's super important because i think despite what we were saying like it's quite common there is still problems mm-hmm. in in any space obviously with homophobia um and you know we've had we've had homophobic referees homophobic opponents and so like i think having the elite players come out as well just just normalizes it a lot more and then that will filter down to to everyone else
3: as well. One hundred percent. I know it's made a massive difference for me. Even like looking back when I started ten years ago, and mm. how much more comfortable mm. I am in my own skin, <laughs> yeah. just from being it being normalised and and seeing it regularly made such a difference. Yeah, I mean, um, it it kind of
5: shocks me. It doesn't shock me when when you mention sort of you know receiving homophobia from the other side. You can. Mm maybe not understands that, but you're not expected. Maybe. Ex- expected, maybe. But like you were saying there, sort of experiencing homophobia from a referee. I mean, what what happened there? Like, that, that, you're like, oh, it's an ongoing case. We can't talk about it. Type five, is it? <laughs> no,
6: I mean, it's half sorted. Um, we were potentially going to go to the media if it wasn't sorted. Okay. It's, it's, it, it was one instant, um, one match, even one referee. Obviously, it doesn't, trans goes through all referees, but like it, it was... Uh, <laughs> really really bad a lot of our girls ended up being really upset after the match mm-hmm. we put in a complaint and um thought it had been followed through by the FA and they responded really posit- positively however he was then appointed to our game uh for next week
5: wow so for the week coming up
6: <clears throat> we've just managed to change that because we said we're not we're not playing if he's refereeing um but you know, we thought it had been taken seriously, mm-hmm. um, but it turns out all he's got is a warning and he's going to be watched for a few games. And that's kind of it. But funnily enough, well, not funnily, but he's actually been, been reported by several teams before. Um, so I don't really know, I mean, what the process is.
5: Um, some well, some um, very clear examples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry you guys have been through that. <laughs> um, And well done also for, you know, fighting your corner and making yeah. sure that he wasn't you know officiating yeah. your game next next week like credit yeah. to you guys well, i think obviously you mentioned that the, obviously the standards of refereeing or at least the education of referees maybe needs to improve at, at grassroots level um are there any other sort of things that you'd say oh we need to improve this to make sure the game continues to be inclusive or it continues to progress to be to be as inclusive as possible um what you
7: i say? don't know i think it's yeah it's, it's hard because even in a team like in teams that are very inclusive and do their best like there's still so many opportunities to like educate each other Mm -hmm. but like to like making sure people back one another up and are like taking the time to like help like support those voices that are already marginalized and like making sure everyone's doing their part um is really important so it starts so small like making sure just like teammates are doing it and coaches are doing it and then building from there um because yeah I think it's Particularly difficult, like thinking about, yeah, like trans issues within mm-hmm. the trans mm-hmm. issue within sports and like making it a safe space for mm-hmm. trans people. Um, I think that's something that I'm hoping continues to progress yeah, as well. Yeah, percent There's just so much working against trans people mm-hmm. in Absolutely. sports. And um, yeah, it's nice to know that there are so many teams that do take it seriously.
3: All right, Rach, I think we will finish up there. Um, where are you heading this weekend? What are you up to? Aston Villa on Saturday, and then heading up to the northwest, and I'm going to do Man United. I think it's Man United, Everton. So yeah, big Ooh, weekend. That's going to be a tasty fixture. It is, yeah. I mean, you know how I feel about Man United, but I do think they're going to come up
5: against a pretty bloody difficult Everton side.
3: Um, yeah. I mean, obviously they've had some pretty dominant performances in the WSL, but you know, if we look at at the FA Cup this weekend, it was two one against Sunderland. So, um, kind of makes a Maybe a little bit trickier to call against Everton, who had a good run of form in the WSL as well so far, but also lost at the FA Cup. So, I think you know United should still be able to take this one, but um, definitely a tasty fixture for sure.
5: That's exactly the kind of note we want to end on. Um, I am away this weekend uh, with Palace in Southampton. Southampton been doing bit, so I think that's going to be another tasty battle for us as well. So. Hopefully we can kind of turn our fortunes around on this game. But uh, we will wait and see. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining us today on Upfront. We'll be back next Tuesday. But if you have any questions for the show, please do tweet us. Uh, we're at Football FootballRamble. I am at Morgie underscore 89 and Rach is at Girls on the Ball. We will see you next week.
4: Upfront is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.